Commencing countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field. On this episode of the podcast, we speak with Tori Cuff, who is the former Agile Acquisitions Branch Chief at Kessel Run. Kessel Run is the Software Capability Development Division within Program Executive Office Digital under Air Force Lifecycle Management Center with a mission to continuously deliver war-winning software our airmen love. Tori discusses how Kessel Run is different than other program offices in the Air Force. She goes into detail about the types of challenges the team has faced in doing things differently and how industry has responded to working in a non-traditional Department of Defense environment. This episode is not just for teams that acquire information technology. Tori talks about lessons learned at Kessel Run and how other acquisition teams can apply those concepts to their organizations. All right, welcome, Tori, to the podcast. Thank you. So, Tori, can you tell us what is Kessel Run? I like to say Kessel Run is a startup within the Air Force. The program kind of has morphed over time. So what started out as a small project within a lifecycle management center partnered with Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. Now they have since dropped the X, but um, back in 2017 when we started, they uh, were still an experimental program. Uh, Was born of the ashes of a Air Operations Center 10.2 combined with a third-party application development group uh, targeting in GeoInt. So really was this massive 10.2 at the time was up for its second critical change, had been in development for 10 years, uh, had spent on the order of $430 million, and uh, Congress said, specifically the late uh, Senator John McCain said that this is yet another example of how the DOD cannot develop and build software. So basically came out of that after they were denied the second critical change to go find another way. And back in April 2017, senior leadership from the Air Force got together actually out at San Francisco and Pivotal Labs and Ms. Costello was there and really said, go do and uh, leverage these industry partners that we typically don't partner with, which is the huge benefit of the other transaction, and see if there is another way that we can do that. So in August 2017 is when I really say Kessel Run kicked off with the award of the prototype other transaction, where we were testing out for six applications and three cloud instances, can this methodology and leveraging commercial software work in the DOD space. So that was the foundation of Kessel Run. And just over two years now we have, or less than that, we've scaled from those six applications to over 18 applications now and five uh, instances to support the deployment of those applications. That's awesome. So out of that, can you tell us how Kessel Run um, is different than other program offices in the Air Force? So I like to say that Kessel Run was kind of a perfect storm of funding and people. 
first thing to get anything started is you need money. And it's usually pretty difficult to, with how long our cycle is to receive, like how we ask and receive for funds in the POM cycle, it's a three to four year process to get funding to start an effort. But since we were born from a terminated program that already had an existing funding stream that uh, leadership allowed us to reinvest into the modernization effort, combined with, uh, like I said earlier, the targeting and GeoEnt portfolio had already begun siphoning out their budget. Their third-party applications that a large majority are deployed into AOCs, but they were trying to modernize the way that they built their application. So they started to siphon their budget in a way of what is minimally sustainable for those things that are out in the field today, because those are what is being used to execute uh, the war. And then they were setting aside whatever they could carve out was for these modernization efforts. And that's kind of how uh, Kessel Run funded the effort initially. And then the people. So more than anything, this project has taught me that the technology and processes all exist to enable. Uh, and actually, even the FAR and the DOD 5000 series and the FMR has the leniency to be able to execute in this manner. But we have to give our people the freedom to and the environment so that they can innovate and use those different levers to be able to uh, match the speed of agile software delivery. So speaking for myself on that front of why I kind of got into this project was I have been a part of the Air Force now as a civil servant for over six years. and. Knew I wasn't going to put on the uniform myself, but I wanted to make sure that we were providing the best technology for those that did. And so before Kessel Run, I had been working at Hanscom for just about four years and had never been a part of a project that delivered. And then when I would talk to my colleagues, I found that uh, some of them were working for 10 to 12 and actually were never part of a fielded system, which okay. kind of spurred this research for me of, you know, what is the... I'm a cost analyst by trade, so I was doing a lot of uh, what are the cost methodologies on schedule, kind of looking into software development kind of sparked my interest and then kind of a happenstance of placed on uh, the targeting and geoint portfolio initially with Captain Kroger, who is a targeteer by trade, who came to acquisitions because he wanted to fix the systems that he was forced to use out in the field and knew that or believe that he could kind of move the needle on that front. So he was a part of the effort. And then we had Adam Tortado, who came into the effort as well, who was a also previously enlisted targeteer. And then Colonel Sanders, kind of all of it meshed together to create this group that was like really trying to push things forward and uh, see if we could figure out ways that our system could work. Uh, and what was there for us. And that kind of started with the OT and the award of that. But I really think every program office has that. Uh, I have been a part of a bunch of the Defense Innovation Board uh, groups, working groups that are trying to figure out how do we kind of increase the DOD's ability to deliver software. And one of my fundamental kind of talking points always is, is the people exist. We're just not giving them the freedom so that they can actually begin to execute. When we study and look at 
our timelines for contract awards uh, across uh, AFMC, it's north of 330 days, regardless of whether it's dollar value or competition or sole source. And if I then restrict it to zero to $50 million, I only save 30 days. So we've incentivized all of our people to do big contracts that are 500 million plus because there's no real time savings. But that's what I'm talking about FAR part 15 or 16. When I start using like the different parts of the FAR, like 13.5 simplified acquisition procedures and 8A and uh, FAR part 12, that's when you kind of have this marrying of I can do, or we can do this a lot faster by pulling those rather than trying to do a big, large contract. So you were talking about different strategies. Um, can you talk about the contracting strategy that is used at Kessel Run? So again, it comes down to the people and I was super fortunate and cannot say enough about our contracting team composed of Christina Botello, Kyle Anderson, Melissa DeLuca, and Lorian Rissler are just amazing. I uh, can't say enough. So, but kind of what was our strategy? So we were new to all of this. We were going about the other transaction to access non-traditional companies that don't work with the DOD. And we knew that industries kind of cracked this nut. So we went on contract with Pivotal and Myself and Melissa Dulica was a big part of the process, as was Captain Kroger, as far as that initial, what does our statement of work look like in this instance? Um, and that was critical. So we helped write that along with DIU. But that was kind of just the start. So you get on contract with Pivotal, and Pivotal's business model is really enable your workforce uh, and the practices for software development, like they focus on lean product management, user-centered design, and extreme programming, creating this balanced team model. And they also sell a platform as a service to uh, deploy your applications to, which is Pivotal Cloud Foundry. So that was what we were prototyping. What we click, quickly learned as we began executing is it's significantly more than just the OT. So I would like to say that we had a very well thought out strategy, but it was more of we would realize we had a capability gap and start fixing or leveraging our amazing contracting team to how do we plug that hole, whether it is procuring software, whether it's sole source competing, uh, using existing uh, vehicles, uh, NASA soup, all of that, or whether it was creating a new service like our turnkey software environment that was equipped with all the hardware and services needed to create a software lab. Those are the kinds of things that we learned as doing and then based on requirements and again, their incredible knowledge of the FAR of whether or not we should use a 13.5 verse 12 verse 8a to kind of craft what makes the most sense in the timelines. So although I'm super proud of the fact that we not only were a part of the award for the prototype other transaction, we also were the first Air Force organization to award a production other transaction and actually awarded another OT for the enterprise once Dr. Roper expanded our authority beyond our program office. But we've, since March 2018, have awarded 16 FAR-based contracts. All of them were new and all of them were based with that like small innovative team kind of really navigating and helping us award and totaling 
these contracts end up totaling 200 million across four different PEs. And again, the entirety of the acquisitions team until just about recently was under 20 people doing this. So it sounds like through that process, you guys were continuing to do, you know, analyzing what was going on, looking for any gaping holes, and then pivoting as necessary. So what have been some of the challenges that Kessel Run team has faced? So I think if I would say challenges, I would sum it up to three at the end of the day. So scaling, manpower, and culture change. And this actually is not much different than what industry experiences in this case. So scaling, what I talk about, I recently spoke at Spring One, which is a pivotal conference uh, that marries up a lot of their customers and some of the other industry. And I was speaking at a smaller group where we I talked about this. And scaling is an issue for everybody, but we're kind of almost comical in our um, scaling compared to what industry does. Like all of our problems are kind of that magnified. So when we went from six to 18 product teams in less than 18 months, that's tripling your portfolio. And our manpower went from, I want to say, less than 100 to over 400. That is well beyond what anybody recommends, of course, of a scaling model that is sustainable. On top of that, that would have that is a difficult in itself to keep up with that pace. But what is even more difficult for our organization is the manpower aspect. So to be able to get going and to start quickly, we didn't have enough people internally to staff our teams. And when I say we staff our product and platform teams, uh, our primary goal is always first to have organic support, whether that be military or civilian and contractor. And then we kind of introduce this new, what I call temporary, where we have uh, long-term TDYers coming and supporting our project for six months at a time. So, and then Pivotal, I also call temporary since they're not like our typical contractor support that we have them for longer periods of time. Their model is actually very similar, about six months where they'll have turnover themselves. And usually we'll be moving out of Pivotal Labs at that point, or that's the goal. So we lose them as uh, part of our team. It was at a point at one time where we had 60% of our staff turning over every six months with that temporary staff providing a big portion of the support on our teams. So we've been working that. So manpower is something that we talk about pretty much every chance we get in front of senior leadership is to be able to sustain this type of effort and to sustain the scaling, we need the manpower. And then that kind of leads into my uh, final point of the culture change is, although I fundamentally believe cloud computing is that one of the biggest technological advancements that kind of really allows the barrier of entry to be lowered for development of products. The still the biggest barrier in the way is culture change. And this isn't just for the DOD. This is just for every organization. It's a different method of how do you build, how do you iterate instead of long-term planning, what's the smallest thing I can do to start iterating and how quickly can I get it into operations? So kind of the first problem that really kind of allowed Kessel Run to 
expand was the fact that we have the continuous authority to operate once our software passes through the pipeline and of course a couple other uh, tests that Ms. Knozenberger has implemented on us. But that is the game changer where we can really deploy our software and see if this is something worth investing in. But even that, it's the culture that's getting off base, why we're off base. It's to create this innovative open working space, uh, access to commercial internet, kind of how do you create the culture where innovation is going to really drive? Because at the end of the day, culture drives process, which drives the technology. It's the people that allow us to continue moving forward. And it's what is going to be our greatest limiting factor, I truly believe. So how do we tackle all of these things? It's going to be what every office has to tackle. Another challenge and a roadblock we faced was kind of twofold. So what we found is we would staff our teams with who was capable to do software development. So those are very much, uh, or most of them were not acquisitions, people trade. So there's a language barrier kind uh, between what they would ask for and then kind of how acquisitions translates into contracts and requirements. So I can talk about it on two fronts, right? You, you have a software developer and they talk about development. In your financial management regulation, that means development funding and funding dollars. So there is that roadblock there. But the one I want to focus on is actually on just procuring software or uh, requirements additionally as they're beginning to work on a product. So a perfect example is our team always focuses on the custom part of the software. So for the Air Operations Center, it is um, what you need to do to build an air tasking order. And one of the teams came up to us and said they wanted a data analytics tool. And the tool that they requested, they requested a by name. So they requested Tableau in this example. And that usually needs a brand name justification. And then, so the acquisition team begins to do research and there is a whole slew. You have Tableau, you have Salesforce, you have a bunch of companies that provide the software and the differentiator between the software is minimal because the space is so competitive. Even more applicable example could be your tools for communicating. Uh, you have Slack, you have Rocket Chat, you have Google Hangouts. And what's the difference maker between those is so slight, but it comes down to user preference. And I always relate things back to personal. Um, I think it's the easiest way to look at things. What makes you choose Android versus iPhone from a personal perspective? Uh, the technology is almost exactly the same on most aspects. It really comes down to user preference and usability for you. That is something that is not easily uh, allowable right now under a certain dollar or over a certain dollar value for the government. And we were spending significant amounts of time on these small software procurements. I'm talking about maybe slightly over a million dollars and not only time investment of the acquisitions team, but time investment to award. Software procurements initially were some of the hardest things for us to award, more so than services. Because of this, it really came down to preference. But the preference matters because usability of the tool is what is most important. You want to equip your team with what is 
going to make their life the easiest to be able to execute. But the rules and regulations that guide acquisitions make that very difficult. So we did navigate that. Uh, we were able to get software to support, but it also spurred uh, and that idea again by the amazing contracting team of let's make this a service. And so we ended up doing, because not only is it timely to award, but then you have the management of all of it. So we awarded a software tool chain management service where their whole responsibility was to help with that, to work with our teams to uh, understand what the need was, to help with accreditation if required and the documentation associated with that, and then the purchase and management of the licenses moving forward. So that's another roadblock that I think a lot of teams are going to experience is it is not easy for the government to quickly buy a software. And there's definitely ways we can navigate. Again, uh, I'd reference we had some big lessons learned in our acquisitions playbook on that front. So how has industry responded to working with the Air Force in this non-traditional environment? Uh, we've had great response uh, from industry a lot of interest, of course. I said one of the things that we needed to get started was money. Uh, the other thing that kind of enabled us to get start, started was right before the termination of the program of record, the program office had awarded um, a long-term maintenance and sustainment contract with Raytheon, which had CLINs on there actually for modernization efforts that were levels of effort. So we were able to leverage that immediately to help with our staffing. And so Raytheon has been a part of our team since the beginning. Since then, all the contracts we've awarded have been to small business because of just the amount of small business interest in this respect and qualified. Uh, we, would, we let out a uh, RFI for, we were looking into doing like a, an IDIQ or something along those lines, and 48 of the respondents were small businesses. Um, and I think we had a total of, I wanna say it's north of 60. I don't remember the exact total, but I do remember that 48 of them, the vast majority were small businesses. And so right now we have upwards of, I wanna say nine or 10 services contracts. And um, most of them have been awarded to different businesses. So we've had really good response as far as interest, but then also talking to contractors that are working day to day, all of the people that work on this project are not wearing uniforms, they're all wearing civvies. And so it is very, there is not a difference to me whether or not you, or I don't notice the difference and of who is contractor, who is, civilian and who is military. And that has made this uh, teaming environment uh, such a different environment for contractors to work in as well, and really gotten great responses from almost everybody that has touched this project of it's just an environment that's enjoyable and such a cool project to be a part of at the end of the day when you know and you can see that you're delivering something. They. Um, Right to push uh, software all the way out. All they have to do is hit CF push and you have contractors and everybody witnessing the fact that they're what they wrote on Thursday is being deployed on Friday, if that's their deployment cadence. And that has gotten just incredible responses all around from everybody on the team. 
So what have you learned in working at Kessel Run and how can folks listening apply those lessons learned to their organizations? So I have learned is the hardest thing is getting started. It's the hardest problem still for everybody. And it's not a technology problem. It's a culture problem. And like I said earlier, that's not just pointed at the DOD. It's everywhere. It's every large organization is having this issue right now that was not born out of the technological movement of the Facebooks and the Googles. Um, You have like GE and the banks are all trying to do this. And it's why we're witnessing 20 to 50 companies fall out of the Fortune 500 every year right now. So that massive turnover just shows just how difficult it is to continue to stay on the forefront of technology advancement. So I think you can kind of get bogged down with all the options that there are as far as what type of agile software development you want to do, whether it be Scrum or XP or Kanban. And then we start talking about cloud providers and who do you want to provide your cloud? Is it going to be private or is it going to be public? All of that is kind of hinders you from getting going. All you need to do is to start. So picking that first project that is important enough that your stakeholders care, but not so important that you can't fail. Um, So how do you break down a large project that somebody wants you to focus on into a small part with a Tiger team that can really start executing? So is the Kessel Run model scalable across the Air Force? And if so, how would you suggest Air Force leadership capitalize on Kessel Run lesson learned? So I do believe the model works. I think that putting the ownership back on the government, like I said earlier, that we put military and civilians at the product development level is critically important for all mission critical systems. The typical way of building is we do a requirement and then that requirement turns into a program strategy, which then turns into a contract strategy. And then we usually go contract for one contractor to build. That process can take on the order with regardless of system 12 to 15 years to get an initial capability out to the field. So with the speed of which technology changes, and we know that, how do you get something out quicker? And so I believe the model works. We've proved the model works. We've scaled it from six products to 18 products and also scaled out the platform that is underlying and supporting that. You also have senior champions that this is a constant topic. Uh, Dr. Roper talks about it, Ms. Lord, General Goldfein, and others across the services, that this is where we need to move the needle is how we build and deliver software. They've also let out guidances that kind of give you the ability to move quicker uh, with the implementation of 804 and the middle tier acquisitions and 806, the development prototyping and development of weapon systems components or tech give you like those keys to get started, which are kind of the program strategy that usually is the freeze point. So that all coupled together with actually having program offices be responsible for the entire cycle and watching that their software gets deployed to operations, I think is critical. Uh, it's the whole idea of DevOps in the first place. I'm We're just applying it to the entire uh, acquisition system. 
you don't want to build a system where you throw it over to the test community and then the test community throws it over to the operations community and we have those clear breaks. It should be a continuous cycle where people from each of those communities are working together to build and deliver that software. That all being said, uh, to get started, I think funding is always the most important. You need money to do these things or you need to siphon off a portion of your budget that allows you to get started. And you can do this. You don't need to let out a big contract. Fundamentally believe that modular contracting is the way that we should be able to do this, not only from a timeline to award perspective, but it also reduces dependencies on a single contractor. And then I also believe in service contracts. Uh, when we're asking for a service, if I'm asking for you to provide me people that are experts in user-centered design or this uh, methodology of agile, I am asking you to help staff my teams. And again, the government has ownership of the product at the end of the day. I had alluded to it earlier, you have the 13.5 where you can award under 60 days as long as you're under 7 million. There's also the opportunity to do an 8A set aside if you're under 4 million without competition based on market research. So bottom line is another plus to that is that those lower contract values have lower levels of review because they're lower risk and that increases your timeline to award. And talking to industry is one of the best things. It's one of the best things that we do consistently. Uh, we talk to industry partners all the time. And as long as you haven't written out your requirement, you're able to go, or you haven't started drafting your uh, contract documents, you can go do those one-on-one -on -one meetings. It's actually, the FAR encourages this behavior. And then they go on to say that, again, that future requirement, as long as you have not begun the procurement process, you are not disclosing anything of competition to contractors. So all that being said, the time and materials, the modular contracting, the just getting started is what I believe every group needs to do. And I think every group can do. Leveraging your performance work statements, and statement of objectives as well. Like the toolbox is completely there. I think you're planning on posting the acquisitions playbook that came out of Kessel Run on the website and pretty much these sentiments as well as lessons learned of what contracts we would let out when and what contracts worked and which ones didn't uh, kind of documents that a little bit better and will help hopefully other program offices kind of get going. Well, Tori, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. You provided some very important insights that should be looked at and how we can deploy concepts executed at Kessel Run across the Air Force and the DOD. Tori did a great job sharing the Kessel Run story. I wanted to highlight a couple takeaways from our discussion. First, Tori stressed to learn from doing. The only way to do things differently in search of buying things better is to actually do things differently. That means doing your research, considering the alternatives, getting your leadership and functional teams on board, and doing it. Once you've executed, continuously go back and see what can be learned and also improved upon for the next acquisition. Second, allow room for evaluation of your strategy. Kessel Run did this through modular contracting. 
USC Federal Acquisition Regulation Part 39, and having strategically set periods of performance on the contract to incentivize the contractor to perform while also allowing for off-ramps if the team strategy needed to change. Tori also talked about embedding a government representative at the product development level for mission-critical systems. This enabled Kessel Run to ensure it was getting the product its customers wanted, while also allowing for timely and valuable communication to the development team. Tori also mentioned talking to industry on a regular basis. This can really help the customer understand what capabilities are available, as well as allow the government to put out clearly communicated requirements, which will hopefully result in better proposals submitted and drive efficiencies in the way proposals are evaluated and then contracts awarded. If you have questions on when it's appropriate to talk to industry, take a look at FAR 15.201, which actually encourages exchanges of information among all interested parties, from the earliest identification of a requirement through receipt of proposals. The nuance is in paragraph F, which states after release of the solicitation, the contracting officer must be the focal point of any exchange with potential offerers. Tori said one of the biggest things working on Kessel Run has taught her is that the technology and processes already exist to enable and the regulations actually support this. But we need to give our people the freedom and environment to innovate and use those resources to match the speed of agile software delivery. This points to the challenge of culture change that Tori touched on. Culture change is especially difficult for big organizations, whether in the private or public sector. Although the Air Force is a huge organization with many interdependencies, that also means there are many opportunities out there where teams can focus to improve on the way we are doing business. As Tori mentioned, the hardest part is getting started. So I urge you to identify your contribution to culture change and get started. Also, check out Kessel Run's acquisition playbook in the show notes, which highlights the different strategies they use to do business differently when it comes to software development. You can reach the playbook by going to Air Force Contracting Central, clicking on the Contracting Experience Podcast link under the Communication Corner section, and scroll to the Kessel Run episode show notes. I also included links to a video about Kessel Run put out by Airman Magazine, and another article and video from Defense Acquisition University in the show notes. If you have suggestions for topics or people to interview or feedback on the podcast, you can submit those at the Contracting Experience at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the Contracting Experience podcast. Until next time, keep connecting to the world around you.